to do something this morning, something I always hate when I go to a conference and a speaker says, I want you to stand up and do something with the person next to you. Don't you hate that? But I'm, I get the power now, so I'm going to do it. Don't you stand up, and I want you to look at the person next to you, and I want you to say, Jesus is coming back soon. Are you ready? I wanted to get the blood flowing there for a minute. Boy, this, the heat up here is something else. We turned it off. I don't know if you guys have seen this on the, on the internet or not, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you anyway. It's the children's Bible in a nutshell. And somebody sent this to me, and it's absolutely great. This is through the eyes of a child, okay? It's summary of the Bible. In the beginning, which occurred near the start... There was nothing but God, darkness, and some gas. The Bible says, the Lord thy God is one, but I think he must be a lot older than that. <laughs> anyway, God said, give me a light. <laughs> and someone did. Then God made the world. He split the Adam and made Eve. Adam and Eve were naked, but they weren't embarrassed because mirrors hadn't been invented yet. Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating one bad apple, so they were driven from the Garden of Eden. Not sure where, what they were driven in, though, because they didn't have cars. Adam and Eve had a son, Cain, who hated his brother as long as he was able. <laughs> Pretty soon, all of the early people died off, except for Methuselah, who lived to be like a million or something. One of the next important people was Noah, who was a good guy, but one of his kids was kind of a ham. Noah built a large boat and put his family and some animals on it, and he asked some other people to join him, but they said they would have to take a rain check. <laughs> After Noah came, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was more famous than his brother Esau because Esau sold Jacob his birthmark in exchange for some pot roast. <laughs> Jacob had a son named Joseph who wore a really loud sports coat. Another important Bible guy is Moses whose real name was Charlton Heston. <laughs> Moses led the Israelites, L-I-G-H-T, out of Egypt and away from the evil Pharaoh after God sent ten plagues on Pharaoh's people. These plagues included frogs, mice, lice, bowels, and no cable. <laughs> God fed the Israelites every day with manicotti. And then he gave him his top ten commandments. These include, don't lie, cheat, smoke, dance, or covet your neighbor's stuff. Oh yeah, I just thought of one more. Humor thy father and thy mother. <laughs> one of Moses' best helpers was Joshua, who was the first Bible guy to use spies. Joshua fought the battle of Geritol, and the fence fell over on the town. <laughs> After Joshua came David. He got to be king by killing a giant with a slingshot. He had a son named Solomon who had about 300 wives and 500 porcupines. <laughs> My teacher says he was wise, but that doesn't sound very wise to me. <laughs> After Solomon, there were a bunch of major league prophets. One of these was Jonah, who was swallowed by a big whale and then barfed up on the shore. <laughs> there are also some minor league prophets, but I guess we won't have to worry about them. After the Old Testament came the New Testament. Jesus is the star of the new. He was born in Bethlehem in a barn. 
in parentheses, I wish I had been born in a barn too, because my mom is always saying to me, close the door. Were you born in a barn? It would be nice to be able to say, as a matter of fact, I was. <laughs> During his life, Jesus had many arguments with sinners like the Pharisees and the Republicans. <laughs> Jesus also had 12 opossums. The worst one was Judas Asparagus. <laughs> Judas was so evil that they named a terrible vegetable after him. <laughs> Jesus was a great man. He healed many leopards and even preached to some Germans on the Mount. But the Democrats and all those guys put Jesus on trial before Pontius the Pilate. Pilate didn't stick up for Jesus. He just washed his hands instead. Anyways, Jesus died for our sins. Then he came back to life again. He went up to heaven, but will be back at the end of the aluminum. His return is foretold in the book of Revolution. I thought that seemed apropos to begin today's message on somewhat of a lighter note. But although that story was meant to bring a smile to our lips, the words we're about to study are meant to bring serious consideration to our souls this morning. Today's Palm Sunday. Traditionally, it's the day we recall the historical account of Christ's entrance into Jerusalem amidst the cries and cheers of the people to save us now. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you read John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19, you will read all about how that took place. But unfortunately, those were empty cries. For five days later, the Jewish leaders would have him crucified and one man would die for the sake of an entire nation. How fickle the crowd. How blind and unprepared the people. Yet, they had been warned. The prophet Malachi's words, we know through hindsight, were to be the final prophetic words spoken to his nation for a period of four hundred years. Four hundred years until John the Baptist came on the scene. Now that's a long time for God to be silent. That's a long time to think about one's spiritual condition. That's a long time to consider the choices at hand. That's a long time to wait for a promise to come true. It's also time enough for people to procrastinate and put off the inevitable until it's too late. It's enough time for people to forget and to put these things out of sight and out of mind. When I read the closing verses of Malachi's message to the nation of Israel, which contain unmistakable parallels to today, I can't help but think of the relevant words of the Apostle Peter which we would do well to take into consideration. Hold your finger in Malachi, if you're there, and turn over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 3. I'm sorry, 2 Peter, chapter 3. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of your Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. 
Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Skip down to verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. And the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. God's kingdom will be restored. You can count on it. Plan for it, but don't by any means ignore it. In that day, it will have a personal effect upon you. It will either be a day of rejoicing or it will be a day of regret. And the choices that you make today concerning Jesus Christ will determine which it will be for you in that day. My purpose today, as we jump ahead and we look at Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, is to urge you with all the seriousness and sincerity that I can muster to make that decision that will put you on the side of rejoicing in that day. Because, folks, the day is coming. And when the kingdom is restored, only those who have a right relationship with Christ will rejoice in that day. Look at Malachi chapter 4 and the first three verses. For behold... The day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But as for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. When the day of God's restoration of his kingdom arrives, there will be two responses according to these three verses. And the question that I want to pose to you this morning is, which one of those responses will encompass you on that day? Which one? For those who are running from God, 
The restoration of his kingdom will be a day of great regret. Look at verse 1 again. For behold, the day is coming burning like a furnace. Burning like a furnace. This is real. This is not a myth. The day which Malachi describes here is a time referred to throughout the scripture by the phrase, the day of the Lord. You'll read that all through the prophets. Which designates God's decisive intervention in human history for judgment. And in addition, though, to judgment, the day of the Lord also is connected with the promise of restoration and great blessing in the context that you read it. The ultimate culmination of this day that Malachi refers to seems to find its fulfillment in the return of Jesus Christ. And so it's appropriate that we talk about it today because back when Jesus triumphantly entered the city of Jerusalem, they thought that was that day. The scary part for us, however, is that no one knows the day or the hour when he will return. Therefore, everyone must prepare themselves now. And that's what I really majored on last week. And you prepare yourself now by receiving the offer of grace that God has given you through a personal relationship of faith with Jesus Christ, His only Son. That is the only thing that will preserve you and me from what Malachi paints here as a very bad day, as a children's book puts it. The way Alexander in that book puts it, a no good, very bad day. So friends, let's not brush that off, shall we? Because it will be a day of certainty, Malachi says right there in verse 1. Behold, the day is coming. It will happen. And the Hebrew terminology here indicates imminency, impendency, Finality. It could come at any time, and it's going to come with certainty. Those are all fancy words to say that it's surely going to happen, and it can happen at any time. God has given us His Word on the subject over and over and over again. Listen to the warning of another messenger of God who prophesied about 200 years prior to Malachi the prophet Zephaniah in chapter 1, verse 14 says this, Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. It's a day of certainty that's coming. And it begs the question in every single one of us, what are you trusting in to save you from that day or in that day? What are you trusting in? to save you in that day. For those who are not on board with Jesus Christ, who are far from God, who are indeed running from God, it won't just be a day of certainty, but it will be a day of severity. Verse 1 again in Malachi 4, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. Burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evil doer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze. When that day arrives, every single thing that offends God 
will be purged from the kingdom. Everything. Blown away. Right now in the kingdom, the wheat and the tares, so to speak, grow up together. Is that right? That's what Matthew 13 says. In any given church, indeed, in this church, right now, this morning, regardless of the denomination in every church around this country, around the world, there are true believers and there are those who only say that they believe, but they are not true. In every church gathering, only God knows which is which because he knows the hearts of men and women. People can hide today. They can pull the wool over everyone's eyes, including their own. But in the final analysis, in that day, no one will be able to hide. Nothing even remotely connected with unrighteousness will be spared. No one will be able to cover up. Jesus explained the parable in Matthew chapter 13. Let me read it to you. Matthew 13 and verse 37. He said this. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Notice in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, that the ones that are judged here are called and described as arrogant. And the basic idea behind this word is a sense of pride and self-importance, which is often exaggerated to include willful defiance and rebellion. And that, folks, is really the reason why people do not accept Jesus Christ. Pride. Ultimately, that's the reason. They cannot fathom admitting that they have a need the need of a savior. There are at least three aspects to pride. One is rebellion. That's, I won't do it. Two is self-exaltation. That's the uh, attitude of, I'll do it my way. And the third one is presumption. That's the attitude of, I know it's wrong, but I'll do it anyway. The truth of Malachi's message here was a rude awakening to the popular opinion of his day. They viewed the arrogant and the proud as those who prospered in this life. Is that not the widely accepted view of our own society today? The prophet Zephaniah's words against the pride of the nation's rebelliousness sound a relevant and haunting warning to our current global situation. Back in in the prophet Zephaniah, Again, in chapter 2, listen to this verse, verse 15. 
See if this doesn't sound like something modern day. Verse 15. This is the exultant city which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am and there is no one besides me. How she has become a desolation, a resting place for beasts. Everyone who passes by her will hiss and wave his hand in contempt. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Those are scary words, aren't they? They're speaking of Jerusalem, but they smack of the United States right now in our history, don't they? The day's coming, Malachi says. And it's a day of certainty. And it will be a day of severity. And for the arrogant ones, Malachi says it's going to be a day of intensity. He says, burning like a furnace. It will set them ablaze so that it will leave, neither leave them root nor branch. Every evildoer, Malachi says literally, will be blown away like dust when faced with God's final judgment. Someone once told me that they saw a t-shirt at the mall that had on the front in big bold letters, I love eternal damnation. Now I don't know, I'm not sure, it sounds to me like it's the name of a band or whatever. But seriously, friends, some people have no idea and especially who it is that they're dealing with. Listen to Isaiah's words of warning to those who think there is no harm in contradicting God. Isaiah 5 Chapter, 20, uh, chapter 5, verse 24. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blown away as dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. People who now think that evil is something to celebrate and advertise on T-shirts will not be able to disguise themselves nor deliver themselves when God's day comes. Now, that's not something to feel good about. That's something for us to lament. The intensity and the finality of that day will completely eradicate evil from God's kingdom. God will make a complete end of evil from one end to the other. It will be no more. Some people think that because of this, their souls will be annihilated and therefore they will never experience the pain of eternal punishment. But folks, Scripture clearly speaks of the conscious, eternal existence of the souls, both the wicked and the righteous. Those who die without Christ will experience eternal, fiery furnace, a burning sense of emptiness, infinitely more intense than any depression that you could possibly imagine and the pain of being completely away from God's presence. Jesus described it this way. He said it was a place of outer darkness where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. How can you dismiss those words of Scripture that Jesus uttered and say there is no such thing as hell? What was he talking about? It's not a pretty picture, is it? 
And I don't think Jesus was being melodramatic. He doesn't strike me as that kind of a drama person. I think he grieved so deeply over the fact that people would ignore him and dismiss his words as mere exaggeration that that's why he talked about it so much. I think he still grieves over it today. In fact, there are probably those of you sitting here this morning thinking, I don't want to hear this. I have a hard time buying into all of this. But the fact is, one day it won't seem so far-fetched to you. But in that day, you may wish that you handled this day a little differently. We need, as Jesus so graciously challenged us, to have ears to hear. The question is, do you have ears to hear? Are you really listening? In his book, When You're All Out of Noodles, Ken Jones writes about a lesson he learned one day at the office. He said, when I walked into my office, I noticed something I had never seen before. It was round, about the size of a dessert plate, and plugged into the wall, giving out a constant noise. It wasn't a loud noise, just constant. What in the world is that thing, I thought as I stopped to stare. And I finally asked the receptionist about it, and she said, it's an ambient noise generator. Anybody seen one of those? They're all over the place. If it's too quiet in here, we can distinguish the voices in the counseling offices and we want to protect their privacy. So we bought the noise generator to cover their voices. It's not loud noise, just subtle but constant. The explanation made perfect sense to him, he says. It didn't have to be louder didn't it have to be louder to mask the conversations, he asked? No, she said. The constancy of sound tricks the ear so that what is being said can't be distinguished. Interesting, isn't it? One kind of noise to cover the sound of something else. No wonder we strain to hear what God has to say. Constancy of sound. Little noises, soft, inward, ambient thoughts and fears and attitudes that trick the ears of my soul and masks the still, small voice of God. iPods, iPhones, iTunes, email, eHarmony, YouTube, BoobTube, traffic, text messaging, hurries, Worries, Mark chapter 4, verse 19, the cares of this life, the lure of wealth, the desire for nice things. What is it that is making God's voice indistinguishable to you? What is it? Constancy of sound. That's what's behind the seventh grader who finds out one day that she's pregnant. She's listening to all the wrong noises. It's behind what happens to the regret-filled couples who opt for calling it quits instead of calling on Christ. It's behind what happened to Pilate when he pronounced sentence on Jesus after admitting no less than three times that he found no guilt in him. 
And after his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But then Luke chapter 23 and verse 23 says this, a very important verse of Scripture. It says, But the crowd shouted louder and louder and louder for Jesus' death, constancy of sound. And then it says this, And their voices prevailed. Pilate didn't listen to his own conscience. He didn't listen to his wife. He didn't listen to every overture that God was trying to make to him. The world's voices prevailed. Friends, God is not silent. We're just not listening. No one, no one on the face of the earth has to experience the day that Malachi describes here as a devastating fire. No one does. On the contrary, for those who hear these words of warning, who have not allowed the noise of the world and the voice of the devil to distract them, the coming day of the Lord's return will not be like a fiery furnace which consumes, but like a rising sun which brings warmth and joy. Isn't that better? Isn't that better? It will be as refreshing and as healing as the first day of a long-awaited vacation on a perfect July morning. Doesn't that sound good? No bugs, no bitter wind, no stress, no agenda, no anxiety, no sorrow, no pain, no worries. Man, I want July to come. <laughs> For those who are far from God, the restoration of his kingdom will be a day of great regret. But for those who are right with God, the restoration of his kingdom will be a day of great joy. A great joy. Look at verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Isn't that a nice picture? It's an incredibly encouraging message to me after last week's talk and after what I just said. That's why I choose to fast forward to the end of the book for today. Joy is at the heart of God's plan for his people. Don't miss the direct address here. Malachi says, but for you who fear my name, he speaks directly, personally intimately to those who are his. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You'll go free, leaping for joy like calves led out to pasture, says the Living Bible. Here's how I would translate it in my own version. And you will go free, jumping for joy like a class of fifth graders let out of school for the summer. <laughs> That's the way I see it. Or like a person named Chuck, a person who truly experienced an inkling of this joy of which Malachi speaks. One author I was reading talks about this guy, Chuck. He says, the first close friendship I ever had began when I was 15 years old. Chuck and I went through high school and college together. We double dated together and got rejected together. We were confidants and counselors and chums through every important event of life. Several years ago, Chuck called to tell me he had cancer. 
The initial prognosis was very good, although he did have to undergo difficult treatment. And in typical fashion, Chuck shaved his head before the chemotherapy began, covered it with glue, sprinkled it with gold glitter, walked around the house in his underwear, calling himself Chemo Man. <laughs> Chuck and I lived more than 2,000 miles apart at this time, but we talked every Saturday morning during the time he was undergoing treatment. The chemotherapy destroyed his appetite. He was unable to keep food down. He became so gaunt and emaciated that he was almost unrecognizable even to his children. At one point, an infection set in, and his condition was briefly touch and go because of the chemotherapy had so weakened his immune system. But Chuck pulled through, and eventually he completed treatment. Chemo man had prevailed. A month later, Chuck had his first post-treatment checkup. He called me that night. The cancer was back, the doctor told him, at levels as high as they had been before the treatment. Being a doctor himself, he knew that the return of the cancer this strongly, this quickly, meant that he was going to die. It was a death sentence. I was numb, said the author. When I went to bed that night, I couldn't even pray. It's some mistake, I protested. They'll find out it's okay. I marveled at how quickly denial sets in. At 6.30 the next morning, Chuck called again. He said, you won't believe this, he said. Someone in the lab had mistakenly switched his results for those of another patient who had not yet even been through treatment. And it turned out that Chuck's cancer was gone and had not reappeared, has not reappeared these many years later. I'm going to live, my friend said. I'm going to see my kids grow up. I'm going to grow old with my wife. I'm going to live. And for a few moments, he writes, we just wept on the phone like a couple of characters out of a Hallmark commercial. Chuck told me he was filled with gratitude he had never known before. He couldn't stop touching his kids or hugging his wife. Things that had bothered him before faded into utter insignificance. He was going to live. And suddenly, he not, did not just know intellectually, but actually experienced the truth that life is a gift. We don't earn it. We can't control it. We can't take a moment of it for granted. Every tick of the clock is a gift from God. Every day is a day in which to find joy. Psalm 31, 7 says this, I am overcome with joy because of your unfailing love, but you have seen my troubles and you care about the anguish of my soul. For those who have faith in Christ, the day he returns will be a day of unlimited vitality. Verse 2, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Interesting, this son of righteousness phrase, it's nowhere else used in the entire scripture. Some translations capitalize it as a reference to Christ, the Messiah, who is the light of the world, and the sunrise from on high. It's he alone who will bring physical and moral, material and spiritual restoration to the nation of Israel, indeed to the whole world. He'll bring salvation and healing to all men and women who humble their pride and receive him in faith. He is the Lord, our righteousness, and all who come to him are protected and provided for under the shelter of his wings. 
He is our security. He is our refuge and strength. And He is our chief joy. Others translate that phrase to refer to the day of the Lord's return, which will be accompanied by restoration and spiritual revitalization. But it doesn't matter whether you take it as a direct reference to the Messiah or an indirect reference to His coming. The end result is still the same. When Jesus returns at the end of the age, it will not be for judgment for those who are in Him by faith. Those who are His sons and daughters, it will be for joy, for healing, and for eternal life, physically as well as spiritually. Isn't that truly the healing that we seek? Isn't that going to be a great day? His salvation brings light and salvation and glory to all who receive it now. Now is the acceptable time. Now, the scripture says, is the day of salvation. Jeremiah 29 made this promise to Israel. And we can apply it to our own lives. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord of hosts. Plans not for calamity, but to give you a future and a hope. Good plans, great plans. When Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday, they thought that day had arisen. The only glitch was is that the nation as a whole rejected him because he wasn't what they had in mind, just like people do today. But I'll tell you something, for whoever has received him personally, the day of his coming will be a day of vitality, and it will also be a day of liberty. You will skip around like calves from the stall, released from the stall. It's going to be a physical reality in that day. Right now, it's only a spiritual one. But then it will be real, physically. And it will be a day of ultimate victory. Verse 3, you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Here's the great reversal, folks. A colossal turnover. Whatever struggle we experience now in the world will never be experienced again after the day that Christ returns. I can't even imagine that, can you? Every immoral law will be annulled. Evil will no longer have any influence. Every oppressive government will be deposed. Every false religion will be exposed. Every demonic power cut down. Every enemy vanquished. That is what will happen when Christ returns. Evil has, up until now, been given a long leash to run on. But in the day of Christ, that leash will come to an abrupt end. An abrupt end. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for it? 1 Corinthians 15 says this, After that the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having put down all enemies of every kind. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. If you're ready for that day, it should have an effect on today. And there's no need to face that day with fear. 
Because Jesus came the first time that all who believe in him and receive him now as their Lord and Savior would never have to fear that day of judgment. Never. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said when he walked the earth, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has it. It's his possession. He owns it. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. It's great. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet says. In Jerusalem, the Lord Almighty will spread a wonderful feast for everyone around the world. It will be a delicious feast of good food with clear, well-aged wine and choice beef. In that day, he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and his people. The Lord has spoken. In that day, the people will proclaim, this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation that he brings. It's a day of great joy for those who know Christ now. A great joy. It will be a Dida day, as John Ortberg calls it. John writes, some time ago I was giving a bath to our three children. I had a custom of bathing them together more to save time than anything else. Johnny was still in the tub, Laura was out and safely in her pajamas, and I was trying to get Mallory dried off. And Mallory was out of the water, but was doing what has come to be known in our family as the Dida Day Dance. This consists of her running around and around in circles, singing over and over again, Dida Day, Dida Day, Dida Day. It's a relatively simple dance expressing great joy. And when she is too happy to hold it in any longer, when words are inadequate to give voice to her euphoria, she has to dance around to release her joy. So she does the Dida Day dance. On this particular occasion, I was irritated. Mallory, hurry, I prodded. So she did. She began running in circles faster and faster and chanting Dida Day more rapidly. No, Mallory, that's not what I meant. Stop with the D-Dad-Day stuff and get over here so I can dry you off. Hurry! And then, John says, she asked a profound question. Why? Why hurry? John says, I had no answer. I had nowhere to go, nothing to do, no meetings to attend, no sermons to write. I was just so used to hurrying so preoccupied with my own little agenda, so trapped in this rut of moving from one task to another, that here was life, here was joy, here was an invitation to the dance right in front of me, and I was missing it. So I got up, and Mallory and I did the Dida Day dance together. She said I was pretty good at it, too, for a man my age. Reflecting on this afterward, I realized that I tend to divide my minutes into two categories, living and waiting to live. Most of my life is spent in transit, trying to get somewhere, waiting to begin, driving someplace, standing in line, waiting for a meeting to end, 
trying to get a task completed, worrying about something bad that might happen, or being angry about something that did happen. Ironically, often the thing that keeps me from experiencing joy is my preoccupation with self. The very selfishness that keeps me from pouring myself out for the joy of others also keeps me from noticing and delighting in the myriad of small gifts that God offers every day. There is a being in the universe that wants you to live in sorrow, but it is not God. We have greatly underestimated the necessity of joy. Nehemiah said to his grieving congregation, quote, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is strength. Its absence will create weakness. Or in the words of Dallas Willard, failure to attain a deeply satisfying life always has the effect of making sinful actions seem good. That's true, isn't it? Here lies the strength of temptation. But here's the key task for spiritual vitality. We must arrange life so that sin no longer looks good to us. One gets the sense that when Mother Teresa used to drive in congested traffic, she didn't have a hard time keeping herself from making rude gestures or calling other drivers bad names. Why? Because such actions no longer look appealing to a person that is focused on the joy that Christ brings. She had found a better way to live. The joy of the Lord brought strength. True joy, as it turns out, comes only to those who have devoted their lives to something greater than their own personal happiness. It comes to those who have devoted their lives to Jesus Christ. The psalmist says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He doesn't say yesterday was God's day. How happy I was then. He doesn't say tomorrow will be a great day. I'll just endure until then. This day, with all its shortcomings, can be a Dida day. If we don't rejoice today, we will not rejoice at all. If we wait until conditions are perfect, we will still be waiting when we die. If we're going to rejoice, it needs to be in this day. This is the day that the Lord has made. This is God's day. And the first step of pursuing joy is to simply begin now what you already know to be true in the future. Amen? Because our judgment was poured out upon Jesus Christ at the cross. He took it willingly, believe and receive the truth. You don't need to come under judgment anymore. He is who he said he was, the Messiah, the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can trust your destiny to him. So, as you look back this week and remember all that transpired in the last few days of Jesus' life, let me urge you in the most basic way that I know how. If you haven't already done it, choose to follow Christ. Choose 
to follow him. And if you already have made that choice, hey, for God's sake, for the kingdom's sake, follow him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I confess that I have not always been joyful in the midst of the trying times that we live in. Yet, Lord, because of the promises of the future and because of the eternal life that you have given us now, we can rejoice. And that will be attractive to those who are looking for salvation and seeking truth. Father, may we rejoice in the way that Christ leads us to and may we share the words of the gospel of salvation with those with whom we come in contact from this day forward. I prayed in Christ's name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.